Hello, I'm Phil Ranson, a member of the communications team at NICE, and welcome to this latest edition of NICE Talks. Today we'll be talking about NICE's recommendations in its recent guideline on the assessment and management of chronic pain. To talk about the guideline and what it means for healthcare professionals and patients, I'm joined by Dr. Cathy Stannard, who is a pain consultant and who was the clinical lead on the NICE Chronic Pain Guideline Committee, and Colin Wilkinson, who is a lay member on the Guideline Committee. Cathy, let me begin by asking you, what exactly does this guideline cover? Sometimes people will have pain which we say is secondary or consequent upon an underlying condition. And that might be something like osteoarthritis or rheumatoid arthritis or endometriosis, for example. And often the treatment of that pain is partly the treatment of the underlying condition. And those conditions tend to have their own nice guidelines. What this guideline covers is pain that is not secondary to an underlying condition, which is why we use the term primary. And this means that there is no obvious underlying injury, but the pain is still very much, if not more severe than in cases where there is an underlying injury. And what we will find is the sorts of conditions that we're looking at for this guideline would be ones for which there is not an existing NICE guideline. And can I ask you what you make of the guideline being described as a step change in the assessment and management of chronic pain conditions? As a person who's worked in the field of pain for many decades, what did I hope that this guideline would do? And what I hoped it would do would challenge the way we think about and discuss pain. And I think it definitely has done that. The introductory part of this guideline, which applies not only to chronic primary pain, but to all types of chronic pain, is very much about understanding the importance of a good therapeutic relationship, understanding what the pain means to the person, understanding the consequences for that person of the pain on their life, and understanding the myriad influences on the pain experience. And I think that is a step change because we certainly live in a time where people may present and say, I've got pain in my arm, okay, here's a painkiller, and not really go into any assessment. Pain is a very complex presentation. And by understanding and asking about and allowing people with pain to talk about their lives and all those things in their lives that we know shape their experience of pain, we have a much better understanding of uh, what might seem at first to be a simple presentation, but in fact is always complex. I think the other important thing for me about this guideline is a concept that we all trot out, but is actually quite difficult in practice, which is the concept of first do no harm. And what we've shown in this guideline is that many of the medicines that we've all used, probably in good faith in the past, to support people in treating pain, in fact, cause more harm than good. And actually, if you're faced with doing nothing or doing something harmful, the compassionate and appropriate response is to not do something, because that is better than doing something that adds to the patient's burden. So I think this does send a strong message about first doing no harm. And so those, those are the reasons that I think this guideline is very important. It changes the narrative, um, it points up the complexity, and it stops us harming people. So Colin, a question for you. The guideline is very clear that decisions about what care and support to offer are best when they're made jointly by the person with chronic pain and their healthcare professional. Why do you think that is? And, and has that been your experience as a person with chronic pain? 
I think the guideline goes slightly further than saying that decisions are best when they're made jointly. It, it says that decisions should be made jointly. And that's a fundamental part of, of as Cathy's mentioned, of changing the conversation about pain between clinician and person living with chronic pain. Many doctors do a fantastic job when talking about pain with their patients, but unfortunately, from the people I've spoken to, there are quite a number of people who don't have a good experience of healthcare. And that poor experience in itself can add to their pain. And having the chance to talk about how pain affects a person's life, how their life is affected by pain and you know, work, leisure and sleep is really important in making sure that that person feels capable to manage their own pain using all of the techniques that somebody can learn that will help them to deal with pain. And a lot of the time it's about finding ways that will help you to live with pain rather than just seeking pills. And, and this guideline does change that conversation quite fundamentally. Thank you. For people with pain caused, for example, by osteoarthritis or low back pain, they, they can continue to have their pain treated with painkillers. But for people with chronic primary pain, the guideline says they shouldn't be started on painkillers, you know, even things like paracetamol question for you Cathy why is that and, and couldn't it lead to patients being denied the very medicines they rely on? Well I think this this guideline was very clearly determined by the evidence that we found when the technical team did the evidence searches and what we know is that if you have back pain there may be a chance that some medicines for example anti-inflammatory drugs may help some people no medicine helps everyone but it, they may help some people what we have found when we looked at the evidence for the populations that we describe as chronic primary pain is that the strong evidence is that the medicines are not helpful for people with these diagnoses but are very likely to harm people and it is very difficult, both for the patient and the prescriber in a clinical encounter, if somebody says they're in pain, it's a very human response to want to do something about that. And it might feel like a compassionate response to try out a medicine. But if in trying out that medicine, you are many, many more times likely to harm that person than to help them, the compassionate response is to not prescribe and to think of uh, supporting that patient in choices for interventions that do help. Moving to Colin, if I may. Colin, do you think that there's a danger as a result of this guideline that people could be denied treatments that do actually work for them? I think that's quite unlikely. There will always be some people who will benefit from a treatment. What we've done in this guideline is that we've looked at the evidence and we've looked at the harms that many of the treatments that have been used in the past cause and the very uncertain, small or absent benefit that most people get. In my view, as a patient, very keen for people to have access to treatments that work for them. We've recommended the treatments that will work for most people and we've avoided recommending those treatments that will do everybody more harm than the small good that some people might get from them and that to me is the best way to approach this. The guideline makes a number of recommendations for treatments that have been shown to be effective in managing chronic primary pain including CBT and group exercise and those are the things you've just mentioned but what do you say to the suggestion that access to physical and psychological therapies for pain are 
a community level is currently patchy. And that this needs to be addressed urgently as a new guideline is to make a genuine difference to the lives of patients with chronic primary pain. I couldn't agree more. I've had experience myself of having to wait for therapies like that. And being told you need this but you can't have it for six months is a very, very destructive thing to hear. Commissioners and health trusts and people who provide these services need to work together to resolve this. It is an urgent challenge. We can't say to people, well, we can't offer you anything for six months, even though you're in pain. That's, that's just not good enough. Okay, thank you. Cathy, what about people with chronic primary pain who are already taking these painkillers? Should they simply stop taking them? Nobody should stop taking any medicine suddenly without discussing it with their prescriber. And that comes out extremely loudly and clearly in this guideline. Uh, there is no ambiguity in the guideline that for people who have chronic primary pain diagnoses, they should, as part of routine good clinical practice, be having regular discussions with their clinician about how helpful the medicines are. If, on reflection, the medicines are not very helpful at reducing pain, then the balance of harms and benefits is obviously unfavourable and the patient and the doctor can work to carefully re reduce that medicine in a way that avoids any side effects. If the patient is describing a benefit from a dose that we know is relatively safe, then it would be a discussion between the prescriber and the patient about whether they wanted to continue with that. But we know that when benefits do occur, they are very modest and often not very long lasting. So it's still very important for that person taking that medicine to have that chance to review their medicines with their healthcare team regularly to ensure that the balance of benefits and harm is staying positive for them. Okay, so again, a question for Cathy. What do you say to the suggestion that there could be a risk that those diagnosed with chronic primary pain might include large numbers of people with a different, ultimately identifiable cause of pain to whom the guidance doesn't actually apply. I can see why people might say that. Again, we are very clear in the guidance that chronic primary pain and chronic secondary pain can coexist in which case one makes decisions based on the balance of symptoms and the preferences of the patient at the time. And we also do make clear in the guidance that an initial diagnosis of chronic primary pain may, with subsequent understanding of disease, become a secondary pain diagnosis or clinical presentation may evolve and so secondary pain diagnosis then becomes clear. This is why the emphasis on first doing no harm is very important. Nobody's going to be harmed if they are given a diagnosis of chronic primary pain, which eventually evolves into a secondary pain, if somebody follows the guidance, they will not be given harm. If you look at the therapeutic recommendations for the secondary pain syndromes in NICE, it's very clear that medicine's a small role anyway in secondary pains and will only be helpful for a small proportion of people who they're prescribed to. So if you like, there's no danger or clinical adversity that would come from having a diagnosis of chronic primary pain that then evolves one way or another to a clearer cut diagnosis of secondary pain. One would not be missing a treatment that's very likely to help and neither would one be given a treatment that would be harmful even if you had a secondary pain diagnosis. And finally, a question for both of you. Colin, first, I think, what do you hope the legacy of this guideline will be, both for patients and for the healthcare professionals who treat them? 
I think for patients it's a recognition that painkillers aren't the first point of call but also that having that opportunity to discuss their experience of pain and the way it impacts their lives might help them find better solutions and to do so quickly. That's the really important thing is that we find solutions that work for people who live with pain and that those solutions aren't going to do them harm in the short or long term. I think for healthcare professionals it's the information that will help them to say to people no painkillers are not going to work for you but these solutions and treatments will work for you and we'll get you to those as soon as we can. Thank you Colin and Cathy. I don't think I could say it any better than Colin but I would agree from a patient perspective starting with avoidance of harms we know that many many patients are taking pain medicines which are causing them a number of side effects sometimes quite serious but who are deriving no benefit at all this guideline should help that number diminish it is important that they feel believed that their pain is validated by the healthcare professional and that they have the chance to discuss everything that they think is relevant about how the pain is affecting them and about how life is affecting their pain and i think this should move people on from you know sometimes perfunctory assessments to much more whole and rich discussions about what's going on for that patient and from the healthcare professional's point of view I think it's the experience of a lot of general practitioners and people working in secondary care that medicines actually don't work very well, but there's nothing else to really do. So people offer medicines somewhat in desperation. I think this guideline that clearly sets out that that is a bad idea and that is likely to be harmful will help clinicians follow their hunches and be able to say medicines are not the best thing but here we do have some interventions that are shown to improve pain and shown to improve quality of life and to help people incorporate those interventions as part of their self-management strategies for managing pain. Thank you for listening to this edition of Nice Talks. We hope you found it useful. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, why not recommend us to a friend or colleague? You can find us on social media at NiceComs. Join us again next month for another episode. Thanks for listening and goodbye.